Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is Dr. Kevin Schultz. Kevin is a professor of emergency medicine at uh, UT Houston, works at LBJ and Herman TMC. He's also the assistant medical director for Houston Fire. And Kevin, along with those two titles, is joining me today as the race medical director for Memorial Herman Ironman Texas. And it's that time of year here again in Montgomery County to uh, think about uh, the Ironman. And so we're going to get started right off the bat. Kevin, can you start off by telling us about your history with Ironman Texas? Sure, Casey. And first of all, thanks for having me come up and and chat with y'all. So I've been dealing with the Ironman Texas race for about five years now. This actually will be my sixth race. Started out as an assistant medical director uh, my first year out when I was still an EMS fellow here in Houston. And the next year, they kind of the guy who was running it left and kind of handed it over, said, here you go. So I've been the medical director now for the uh, for the race for the last five years. This will be my fifth year as as the medical director. Um, I'm also the, the race medical director for the uh, half iron, the Memorial Herman Ironman 70.3, the half Ironman race down in Galveston, uh, which happens uh, beginning of April. So we got about a three week break between races. So, you know, here at MCHD, we've been, we've been a part of, uh, Ironman Texas for several years now, uh, staffing the event. So, uh, for the listeners out there who aren't MCHD paramedics, uh, a lot of these take home points are really hopefully going to apply to event medicine and, uh, ultra distance, uh, races for everyone out there listening. Uh, but you know, I'll talk to folks around the office and, and ask some of our medics here what what are some of you know what are some of the things that that you guys think about differently when you're when you're staffing Ironman and from the event medical standpoint Kevin what are your top take-home points uh, for medics involved on on you know coming up Saturday um, that may differ from everyday practice on the street so there's there's a couple of big points and I think the first and foremost the largest one you got to remember is these athletes are putting on a tremendous stress on their bodies over the course of up to 17 hours. So the race kicks off between 6.30, you know, 6.25 for the pro athletes and 7 a.m. for the kind of non-professional athletes. And some of these athletes are going to be on the course until midnight. So they're out there for over 17 hours running, biking, and swimming. It's 140-plus miles. Uh, it's a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and a 26.2-mile run. And so the stress these athletes are putting on their bodies is just immense. So a lot of the physiology we see, and we'll talk about some of this stuff more specifically, but a lot of the physiology we see in in the race medical uh, coverage is a little different than what you'd expect and what you see from uh, from patients who are, you know, just you're picking them up at home or they've gone out and, you know, we're playing a game of softball out or something like that. And that's one of the big ones. One of the other ones is that these athletes are supremely motivated. And so to get to this point in their, you know, kind of athletic career and to, to run this race, they've been training for six months, year, multiple years to just to get to this Ironman race, just to get to the point of saying, you know, crossing the finish line and having their name announced and say, you are an Ironman. That's what these people pretty much live for at these races. And one of the problems you run into, I won't call it a problem, but one of the things you'll see is that, you know, they'll push through when maybe it would be in their best interest to slow down or to stop or to, to, to call it. 
because a lot of the people, this is they've been training for this one day. And if the weather's bad, if it's hot, if it's cold, if it's raining, all things that those who've worked the race have seen in the last couple of years, um, or if they start to you know feel injured, you know it's not just a I'm out for a run to stay in shape and oh, I, I tweak my knee, I'm just going to stop and walk. They're going to keep pushing through a lot of times, and that becomes, you know, that can become a problem sometimes with some of these athletes who, when they've trained so hard for this day, they don't want to stop despite, you know, it maybe is in their best interest from a medical standpoint. Um, so those are two of the biggest kind of general take-homes we see. And those, and those two really add on top of each other from the standpoint of, you know, extreme distance and extreme motivation. So you got you got stress, and you've got folks that are, are really willing to run through a brick wall to get to get that that finisher medal for sure. Um, I, in preparation for this, really, I, I went through the office and and talked to some some folks in and out. You know, some of our medics here, trying to prep. You know, what are some of the things that you've seen when you've worked Ironman that you had questions about, or what are what are Ironman questions that you always kind of want answered but but never ask? And two kind of kept coming up repeatedly. And so we'll take these two separately. Um, you know, because they're kind of a two-part answer, but or at least a two separate answers. The first one was sodium. Everyone, everyone invariably had questions about about sodium flux in these athletes. And secondly, was why do we put blankets on these folks when it's you know 75, 80 degrees, and they've just ran you know a marathon and and swam two miles and biked a hundred? You know, I would expect them to be warm. So we'll start with start with sodium, and then we'll talk about blankets. Sure. So, uh, sodium is one of these, uh, one of these things that comes up in the ultra endurance races, whether it be ultra marathons, even regular marathons, as well as, uh, certainly Ironman races and sodium in the kind of ultra endurance athlete is a little different than your standard patient that you see with sodium abnormalities. So one of the things that we typically see, uh, when you're looking at patients who have sodium abnormalities, it's Usually the one we could see more commonly and are concerned about is, is hyponatremia, low sodium. And in low sodium patients, most of the time we see low sodium patients, it's a, a chronically developing condition, right? It's the nursing home patient who, you know, is, can't get enough fluid intake or isn't eating well and they've got a, 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 a chronic kind of nutritional hyponatremia or it's kind of developed over time or it's a condition um, like SIDH, uh, inappropriate diuretic, antidiuretic hormone, where they're retaining water, but it it's all grows over time. And one of the concerns we run into with sodium in the classic teaching is if a sodium, if you correct sodium too quickly, you can cause problems from that perspective. And that's something that, you know, you and I as ER physicians, where it was always beaten into our heads in training, you know, you don't want to correct sodium quickly because you're going to cause more problems than you had to start. And so that's something that we kind of has, has rolled over into the pre-hospital side, into the event medicine side. The thing about these, these athletes is the, the nature of their hyponatremia is different. So it's, it's called exercise-associated hyponatremia. And what it really is is dilutional. So what's happening is, and, and you generally don't see it in the pros, in the elite athletes, those who, who really do this all the time. You see it in kind of more of the, you know, those people, I, I refuse to call them weekend warriors. If you can run an Ironman, you're not a weekend warrior athlete. <laughs> but you, uh, you know, the, the patients or the, the athletes who are, are newer to the sport um, and who are kind of going through some of these pieces. And what happens is it, you get an, a dilutional hyponatremia when you take in too much free water, right? And what ends up happening is you have patients coming in 
where their sodiums are pretty low and they can be as you know they can be really low lower than actually chron- some of these chronic patients that we see come into the emergency department but they're actually volume up total body volume is up and the reason the sodium's low is it's measuring it per volume of fluid so they're diluted out with all this free water they've taken and they haven't taken electrolytes to match it the thing about a, a hyponatremia like that is it's actually you know extremely low sodium can lead to seizures it can lead to um, pulmonary edema, it can lead to cerebral edema, obviously coma, death as you move on beyond that because you've got your volume up and the osmotic pressure in the vessels is low because you have so so few uh, molecules of the sodium there. And so that fluid will leak out into the lungs, it'll leak out into the brain, it'll cause you know some significant problems. And so we really want to correct it quickly. Now typically in traditional hyponatremia, you're not going to quickly correct a sodium unless the patient is, you know, seizing or comatose or pulmonary edema, right? Really, they got to be really sick. End stage. End stage, absolutely. Like this, we're going to correct their sodium rapidly because we're going to take the risk of causing problems by the rapid correction in order to prevent, you know, a, a significant end stage end organ function problem. In exercise-associated hyponatremia, you can actually correct it quickly. They got there fast, right? They haven't re- kind of reset their set point. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to increase the osmotic pressure in the vasculature, bring some of that water, some of that uh, fluid out of the lungs, out of the brain, decrease the cerebral edema, decrease the pulmonary edema, and bring it back into the vascular space. So one of the things that you can see from a, from a physical exam standpoint, from an evaluation standpoint, is that when you typically see the hyponatremic, you know, the little old lady from the nursing home, you know, typically they appear dry, they appear, you know, poor skin turgor, dry mucous membranes, maybe hypotensive, right? All the things we typically associate. Dry as a bone. Dry as a bone, yep. exactly. And then with uh, exercise-associated hyponatremia, you typically see swelling. You see people who um, will come in and they'll, they, you know, their their hands and feet, their extremities will be swollen. You'll see people whose rings are tight, right? Watches or Fitbits or whatever they're wearing on their wrist, their wristbands from the race. You know, the, when they put them on, they don't put them on where it's cut into their skin. Now they come into the medical tent or come into your ambulance and it's swollen to it's, it's like it's going to pop, right? You take their socks off and they've got pedal edema like you'd expect from a congestive heart failure patient, right? That's one of the kind of classic things you see. A lot of these patients, some races, and we don't do this here at Ironman Texas, but some of the really kind of smaller ultra marathon, you know, 100-mile marathon races will actually weigh athletes in and then weigh them at periodic points and weigh them out. These patients will come in weighing more than they weighed at the start of a race, which seems counterintuitive when you think I'm running, you know, I'm going 140 miles and assuming I'm losing fluids, but they actually are taking in so much free water that they're actually increasing. And so that's, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's where we get, you know, you didn't call them weekend warriors. I, I like to call them the 98th percentile instead of the 99th, right? That's right. The 99th are the ones that are, they're the professionals and they're, they know how to professionally exercise they also know how to professionally hydrate and fuel themselves and this is where it comes into the the mistake of of over hydration correct and there's drinking past the point of thirst absolutely uh, absolutely and, and and someone who you know who's not a, an elite triathlete and any anyone who will even step up to the start line at an ironman in my opinion is an elite triathlete just because they're not in the elite category doesn't mean that they're not elites and so Anyone, you know, part of being an elite triathlete, and this is something that we've seen over the last, over, over my six years involved with the race, is we've actually seen a significant improvement as, tri- as triathlon and ultra-endurance triathlon has become more of a, a mainstream kind of sport. It's becoming more popular. 
is a much stronger focus on coaching, a much stronger focus on nutrition plans, hydration plans. So it's not just, can you swim two and a half miles? Can you bike 112? Can you run a marathon? It's how do we feed the body, fuel the body to run through all, to work through all of it. And that is become as important, if not more so than the physical aspect. And I think we've seen, you know, in, in anecdotally, I, I feel like we've seen more and more focus on that from the triathlon community that we see come out to the race. You feel like that translates to less, less of this, less I, of the I do. I do. But you know, the other side of that is that, that, you know, can essentially set you up to, to miss something if you're not looking for it. Right. And, and the other thing about it is that the, the Memorial Hermann Ironman Texas over the past three to four years um, has also been the North American championship race. And so with that brings a little bit higher um, percentage of professional athletes, elite athletes. So that's the other, so that may also account for it. But I really do think that the education and one of the things we do as part of our, um, you know, kind of preventative side of the event medicine is that during the course of the week leading up to the race, starting on Wednesday through Friday, the athletes have are required to attend at least one uh, athlete briefing in Ironman Village. And it's typically talking, you know, it's mostly about the course, you know, they're talking about the course and, you know, turns and go court turn by turn through the whole thing. But we, t- someone from the medical team will get up every time and, uh, and we'll, we'll get the, uh, get a chance to speak to the athletes. And one of the biggest things I focus on in those rate, in those kind of briefings is the importance of hydration, hydration, not just with free water, you know, drink when you're thirsty, you know, you need to be, you know, you need to be urinating, you need to be hydrated enough that you're urinating, but if you've got to urinate at every rest stop, you're actually probably overhydrating, um, stuff like that. So what? So when we're at mile twenty, for instance, at, at an intersection, one of our crews, and we see a, a staggering, swollen, confused athlete wander off into the into the median or into the ditch, uh, what are the things that that we should think? I mean, obviously ABCs and and the basics, but when it comes to uh, hyponatremia. What are what are what are our options, and and what sh- what should we focus on? So one of the biggest things that, and this is where it really gets counterintuitive, especially for EMS providers um, and and ER providers as well. I typically do kind of a mini in service for the uh, if I get get my hands on them for the docs who are going to be working in the ERs during race day. But um, one of the things that you need to be aware of is that these patients are actually fluid up, right? They're overhydrated. And so while their mental status may be a change due, you know, they may have a change in mental status due to some early cerebral edema from their hyponatremia, you know, our natural instinct when you've got someone who, well, you're, you're mile 20 of the run, right? So you're 134 miles into this race. He must be dehydrated. Let's give him a bag of saline, right? And it's one of the worst things you can do for that patient because what you're going to do is you're going to give them more, uh, you're going to give them fluid, you're going to give them some salt, but in general, they're already overhydrated. And all you're going to do is increase the osmotic pressure, pushing fluid out of the blood blood supply and into the lungs, into the brain. So wherever's flooded, it's getting more flooded. It's getting more flooded, exactly. And then what's going to happen is if you do hydrate them to the point of urination, you know the kidneys are still going to waste sodium too. So it's going to you're going to waste water, but you're going to waste sodium. You're not going to you're not going to urinate free water. So that ratio doesn't get corrected. So the correction for it is actually 3% saline. It's, it's uh, hypertonic saline, but it's something that we can't, uh, you know, obviously we need to know kind of what's going on a little bit better. So in the medical tent or in the hospital, typically these patients are going to get a, uh, a sodium check 
before we start any fluids. So if they roll, we, we can check basic labs in the medical tent via iStat. And so if somebody rolls in and, and the rules in our medical manual are, if you start an IV on a patient, you get an iStat and check a sodium before any fluids run through that line. And that's just, that's just the way that we've decided to do it because, you know, it's, it's possible to actually exacerbate the condition. So now that doesn't go for the patient who's staggering and you pull them out of the ditch and their pressure 70, right? Somebody who looks like a dehydrated, you know, hypotensive, they look volume down. That's somebody who you need to treat as volume down, right? And they probably need that fluid because generally a exercise that they have an atremia because of the overhydration, their pressures are going to be okay. Right? Maybe so, a little soft, but not, you know, truly hypotensive. So we need to look, we need to look at their vitals, mm-hmm. make sure that they're, if they're normal intensive, they don't need fluids. They need a sodium check and they need transport of the tent. If they're hypotensive and look dry again, exam here is going to be key also, right? You look at their mucous membranes, uh, you know, heart rate, blood pressure. Uh, and, and in that case, uh, those patients, are going to need are going to need a fluid challenge um and again iv access you know abcs all the all the basic foundational stuff that we already already know how to do so absolutely and that's that's the key is is looking at the complete picture of the patient and considering getting into uh getting getting them to the hospital or to the tent so we can check it out pretty quick so in that same staggering patient it brings us to sort of the question two of the of the popular uh, Ironman questions around the around the office here, and that was hypothermia. So you get that patient at mile twenty, um, and they've been going for twelve hours, and we put a blanket on them. So let's, let's talk a little bit about hypothermia and sort of how, sort of the physiology behind that, and and why the athletes are cold at this point. Sure. So I mean, you know, we're running an Ironman race in in Texas, and so certainly we all, everyone would expect that hyperthermia is more of a problem. And I won't say that we don't see heat in uh, heat illness, and we certainly do, and we're prepared to handle it and to deal with it. And that's certainly something that we should be watching out for. If somebody comes in, feels hot to the touch, right? We're going to treat them as an exertional hyperthermia. The problem with a lot of these athletes, though, is you do see them, especially once they cross the finish line, is hypothermia. And so you've all, everyone's seen, you know, images of, you know, Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, Ironman races, right? Ironman Kona, the net world championship, they cross the finish line, they get a silver spice banquet. And it's like, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But what it really is, is kind of twofold. Number one is that when you're exerting yourself, right, your core temperature rises, right? Metabolic heat, core temperature rises, your body's flushing that blood through this, kind of to the skin to cool it off. And as you're running and you keep generating metabolic heat, you kind of reach a new thermoregulation where you're constantly generating more heat, but you're flushing it past the skin. It's getting cooled off by convection, by, um, you know, evaporation. And then the problem is you stop running, you generally stop creating all that metabolic heat. In fact, your body's probably generating less than it was because you're exhausted. You've been out there for 12, 14, 16 hours, but yet it takes your body a little bit of time to re-equilibrate. You're still pumping that blood past the skin. You're still pumping that blood out to where, you know, the body's mechanism of cooling. So it's you're vasodilated all get out, right? Exactly. And so you're, you're cooling that blood, even though you don't need to be cooling it anymore. And so what'll happen is you'll overshoot, uh, you'll overshoot normal. The other thing to remember is that most of these athletes are finishing after sunset. So yeah, it's Texas. 
you don't, first of all, it doesn't need to be very cold for you to get hypothermic if your body's not regulating well in the first place. And they're finishing as the sun goes down, they're finishing eight, nine, 10 midnight. And they're, you know, so it's, it's already getting cooler. They're soaking wet. Their clothes are soaking wet from, from sweating, from exertion. And certainly if there's any environmental, Additionally, you know, every, we all kind of know that convection and, and moving air is one of the best ways to cool the body. Well, go get on a, on a bike right. and ri- ride miles. 20 miles an hour for 100 miles. Guess what? You're going to cool off pretty quick. So those kind of things actually, so you've kind of reached a new set point, And then when you stop generating that heat, you kind of rapidly overcorrect and you fall below normothermic and that's when that's when you get these hypothermic athletes so it's you it's usually when they stop you don't usually unless it's environmentally cold like we had a couple years ago at the race where it was raining and cold unless it's environmentally cold you don't usually see a lot of hypothermia on the person you pull off the course like they're running you stop them and they're hypothermic usually it's when they stop whether it be they sit down in an aid station or they stop you know at, at after the finish that, that makes a whole lot of sense, and hopefully that helps help some of our medics out there listening kind of understand the sort of the counterintuitive fact that we're going to put blankets on, on a lot of these folks, especially the ones that end up in the tent that are sick. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the more common, you know, I mean, we're going to see hypothermia some. We're going to see uh, scattered hyponatremia, but in all reality, the most common injury that we're going to see in any of these ultra-endurance races is going to be you know, fairly obvious, and that's going to be musculoskeletal injuries. Um, what are some of the most common ones, and, and where do we see those, uh, I guess, during the race, at which points? So there's really two, two major er- categories of musculoskeletal injuries that we see, right? The first is going to be your traumatic musculoskeletal injuries, right? You've got your shoulder dislocations, broken collarbones, broken arm, whatever, rib fractures, those kind of things. And those are almost exclusively seen on the bike course, right? When you've got when you've got 2,000 people riding 20-something miles an hour in a relatively close space, you're gonna ha- you know, occasionally you're going to have uh, accidents and people falling and that kind of thing. So one thing that we, we typically look at with those is if, if you've got somebody who, you know, in the judgment of, your, of a medic were to say, you know, this, this needs an x-ray, we've got a pretty good medical tent set up down there, I don't have an x-ray machine. So if it's somebody who you look at and go, wow, I think this person may have broken their wrist, broken their arm, broken their ribs, you know, that's somebody who probably needs to go to the hospital and just get that checked out. Um, if you're around the corner from the medical tent, bring them in. We'll, we'll eyeball them first. But in general, those are going to get moved on. The other area of, and that's junior on the bike, the other area we see of musculoskeletal is going to be your cramping, right? Your, your, your people who just cramp up. So probably would say the majority of medical tent visits for us are generally exhaustion, fatigue, and cramping. Right, the exhaustion and fatigue, we can typically turn, you know, you, you sit them down, put their feet up, give them something to drink, 20, 30 minutes later, they're fine, they're out the door. The cramping can sometimes take a while, and, and it's due to either just a pure overwork, um, you know, just somebody maybe, you know, maybe they hadn't trained quite to the extent, or it's often due to electrolyte abnormalities, um, and in the most severe cases, it can be due to a rhabdomyolysis, where you've got muscle, actual muscle breakdown, right? You know, generally, the human body's not, typically designed to go 140 miles under its own power. So having, having that, you know, exertion, especially for some of these, you know, again, the 98%, mm-hmm. not the 99, um, can cause some significant muscle breakdown and that can cause some, some cramping there. So the cramping, there's not a ton to do about it. Um, one of the big ones is to check the electrolytes. So again, getting labs before we start blindly correcting things, um, as well as, you know, 
the typical massage, stretching, whatnot. In the tent, we utilize athletic trainers and, and uh, physical therapists to work that side of it, as well as the medical staff taking care of the, uh, the electrolyte abnormalities. That, that makes, makes, uh, makes lots of sense, and I'm sure the athletes appreciate having some of those uh, allied health folks, the, the trainers in there to, to help them stretch out. They, they're, they're, they're the best. Uh, they're, they're one of the biggest, best parts of our medical team. We couldn't do it without our allied health folks. So hypothermia, um, hyponatremia, musculoskeletal injuries, uh, again, these are, ones that, these are ones that kept coming up. One of the ones for me, uh, as someone who follows, follows ultra-athletes uh, peripherally a little bit, um, is, is the patients that go into arrest. Um, one of the ones, again, we hope we don't see, we don't want to see as, as the uh, event directors or the, the paramedics out on the course. But these do happen um, in, in uh, scattered fashion. Where do, where do they happen, Kevin, and, and sort of where and why? On the, on the patients that have arrest? So in general, uh, arrests in, in Ironman triathletes are exceedingly rare. And, you know, generally these people even to, again, step up to the start line, they're in, they're in prime physical condition um, to even attempt a race like this. And I've seen numbers in the sig- single digits in out of 100,000, 200,000, you know, four out of two, whatever it may be. Real small, small numbers. Um, that being said, it does happen. And, and unfortunately with our, our race last year, we had an arrest, the first arrest in first arrest in, in Memorial Hermann Ironman, Texas history, certainly, um, which is ex- ex- extremely unfortunate. Um, typically we see kind of, there's there, the gross majority of arrests tend to happen, uh, in the water. They happen early in the race, somewhere during the swim. And, uh, usually they're not contrary to popular belief. They're generally not drownings. Um, a lot of times it's, it's a sudden cardiac event. It's somebody who just, you know, has the big one and, you know, they just kind of stop swimming. Oftentimes, you know, the water safety, uh, regulations put in place by Ironman and the water safety personnel we have out there is really, really top notch and, and very well saturated with water safety personnel. So it's not common for us to, you know, lose an athlete under the water. Um, even in a, a darker water swim where it's, it's, you know, either choppy, like down in the Galveston in the Bay or, you know, where you can't see underwater. We generally don't lose the athlete under the water. Um, it's caught pretty quickly. So it, it, that's the most common place. Uh, if you look through the Ironman kind of case reports. Now, the other place we have seen, uh, deaths in, in, in Ironman triathlons have been on the bike. And those are typically traumatic. Those are typically a head injury, um, something like that from a fall. And those are very, very rare. Certainly we've got the course well controlled. Um, but you know, the most common is in the water and it's, it's, it's one of those things that is a, is a, is a terrible thing. Um, certainly. And from our perspective on the EMS and, and medical side, there's not a lot we're going to do different. Um, the one thing to consider is potentially consider a hyperkalemic component just because of that, you know, extreme, uh, work. That being said, that's not super common just because it's, uh, especially if it's out of the swim, they haven't been going long enough. If you can, do have an arrest, you know, near the finish line in the run, somewhere like that, you certainly want to consider a hyperkalemic component, you know, to go along with that rhabdo and, and a, a, a acidotic component. And that's a good reminder for our medics out there. We've in the past six months or so introduced a uh, hyperkalemia treatment protocol that involved treating uh, with EKG changes in high risk patients. And we included end-stage renal disease patients, DKA patients, um, as our high-risk class. But for all the MCHD medics listening out there, if you're on the if you're on the run Saturday 
and a patient collapses and you get your EKG and you see a big, wide, ugly uh, EKG or a bizarre slow rhythm, I think we're entirely within in the range of a high-risk patient here that we could go ahead and begin our treatment protocol. So that would be a, a good one to keep, keep out watch for. Um, I think it's also a good reminder that if we do pull folks out of the water that we need to focus on, you know, is, that, is it a shockable rhythm, not drowning? Yeah. And, and, you know, not that it's impossible, but these are much more likely to be, to be uh, you know, straightforward cardiac arrests as opposed to, as opposed to drowning. Absolutely. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you it will absolutely be one or the other. But that being said, you know, typically when you pull somebody out of a lake uh, in cardiac arrest, the, the instinct is to airway, airway, airway. It's the drowning scenario. In reality, you know, these you really got to work on that cardiac, uh, that cardiac side and looking for that early. Well, that's, I think it's a good good spot for us to wrap it up, Kevin. Again, thank you so much for joining us in the office today, guys. If your sound was a little better today, we're not remote. So uh, just a, a little aside there. And for all you listeners out there that want to hear more about dry, drowning and or hyperthermia, and this wasn't quite enough for you and you're, uh, you're itching for more, just uh, uh, keep your ears open. We've got more coming, uh, sort of a summer theme fun pack coming up here in a, in a few weeks and we're going to talk more about drowning more about hyperthermia and uh, until then you guys enjoy the race this weekend stay safe and we'll talk to you soon thank you this podcast was brought to you by the montgomery county hospital district texas production and editing by andrew adams questions or comments which are always welcome could be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts music copyright kevin mcleod and licensed under creative commons by attribution 3.0